final Wednesday night lecture of the summer term. Uh, tonight's lecture is Professor Naomi Barron from American University. Professor Barron is a former Guggenheim Fellow, Swedish Fulbright Fellow, and visiting scholar at the Stanford Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences. For more than 30 years, she's been studying the impact of technology on language, society, and individuals. Besides extensive work on electronically mediated communications, such as email, IM, and texting, she has conducted cross-national studies on use of mobile phones, and most recently, on how we read digitally versus in print. Among her other research interests are child language acquisition, the history and structure of English, and higher education pedagogy. Professor Barron is the author of eight books, including Always On, Language in the Online and Mobile World, and Words on Screen, The Fate of Reading in a Digital World. I know that some of you here have been reading some of Professor Barron's work in the teachers' conference and in the Mellon um, faculty study group. And um, all of you will have been thinking about the impact of, many of you will have been thinking about the impact of writing on memory because of the off-campus seminar um, last Wednesday night. We welcome Professor Barron through the generosity of the Mellon Foundation. Thank you very much. Before I begin, let me say, I have some things I want to share with you, but I especially want to hear what you have to share with me. I want to hear the questions you have. Anything is fair game. If I don't know anything about it, I will tell you I will not just make it up. But I want to make sure we leave lots of time for talking about what's on your minds. As you heard in the introduction, I've worked on a range of different topics. So there's a reasonable probability I'll have at least some thoughts on what you are likely to ask me about. But we'll see how that unfolds. My apologies for my back being to some people, but we're recording and I have my water there and I'll do my best not to make you feel shunned. <laughs> All right. The title is Learning, Knowing, and Remembering in a Digital World. What in the world is that about? Uh, just a little bit of background context. I've looked at digital technologies now for well, a good 30, 35 years. And I've tried to figure out how much technology is impacting the way we do stuff as humans. And one of the things we <coughs> do as humans is we communicate using spoken and written language. One of the things we do is socially interact with one another. One of the things we do is read, another use of language. And one of the things that I hope we do is we learn and know and remember. So my question tonight is, how are digital technologies perhaps influencing the way those three activities, processes take place? As you'll see, there's more to the story than it's the technology. Namely, there's a social context we live in. There are historical factors, there are social factors that determine how we use a technology. I am not a technological determinist. With that, you may need to be at a certain age to know who that is, was. Any takers? Yes, you got it. 
This was in 1964 when he was running for president. And his main mantra, it was on buttons, it was all over, was, in your heart, you know he's right. <laughs> That's not the kind of knowing we're talking about. <laughs> OK, so to way oversimplify things, I've sketched out on this slide and the next one a little bit about what I mean being involved in knowing and learning and remembering. So the first thing is, there's got to be some mental effort involved in those processes. So there's work involved. It's not in my heart I know or my intuition says to me. That's not what I'm talking about tonight. There are things we know in our hearts and there are intuitions we have. That's not tonight's conversation unless you bring it up later. Okay. What do I mean by memory? I mean being able to recall something that at some point you learned and you thought, and maybe for real, you knew. Then there's the issue of integrating the pieces of what you have learned, assimilating new learning and knowledge with prior learning and knowledge. This is not a step that is often enough taken in either lower or higher education, but I will suggest it's a critical one, and one that digital technologies do not, in and of themselves, encourage. <laughs> Okay, issues relevant for learning and knowing. A little bit on the differences between data and information and knowledge. Simplistically put, data are oh, what a semiotician once called fact teams. Um, namely, pieces of information, a fact you could look up, a figure, a statistic. Information can mean many things to many people. It's a multivocal term, but here, we can generally say it means you've done something with those data. You've done at least a first round of processing. Knowledge, again, means many things to many people, but it, it entails some level of really understanding what's going on, as opposed to just being able to point to a fact or figure or several that you put together in your chart. One of the factors that drives my research and my thinking and my excitement about being here tonight is I care about what kinds of standards or what kinds of goals we have when it comes to education and being a citizen, because if you're in school now, at some point you will graduate. You already are a citizen in all likelihood, unless you're from another country, but you're a citizen of somewhere. What is it we want people to know? What do you have to know to be responsible as a citizen in your own right to live a worthwhile life? And then there's the question, and this will be a big theme of what I'm talking about tonight, what kind of data or information or knowledge should we have internally in our heads? And what kind of that stuff is it okay to have externally, such as, oh, I don't know, findable on the internet. Okay. There's a really nice book that came out about a year ago by a man named Michael Lynch called The Internet of Us knowing more and understanding less in the age of big data. You can see where this is going. One of the things he said, and I'll quote, is today the fastest and easiest way of knowing, and he doesn't mean knowing the same way that I have just suggested we define it for purposes of the evening, but he says the easiest way of knowing is Google knowing. But it can also weaken and undermine other kinds of knowing that require more creative, holistic grasps of how information connects together. 
And then he says, greater knowledge doesn't always bring with it greater understanding. And knowledge, again, is pretty shallowly defined in the way he's constructed this book. Because think of what Google knowing is. If you were to Google what is the meaning of life, would you believe what you found? Okay, understanding is what we have when we know not only the what, but the why. And this makes a certain amount of common sense. The question is, as we live our lives and use digital technologies, do we keep this in mind? Okay, digital challenges. First, they'll talk about the good news about digital media, then I'll talk about some of the potentially challenging news. One of the things that the internet is terrific for, so when I'm talking about digital media now, I could be talking about a hard drive, or I could be talking about a thumb drive, which the first quotation talks about, but it's some storage device, which these days is best defined as the cloud, because there are these huge servers in such places as Virginia that Amazon runs and Microsoft runs and whatever that store this incredible amount of stuff that you cannot put on your flash drive. But uh, somebody quoted in a study that I will talk about in a moment, uh, I'll talk about what Kaspersky is later, uh, a scientist by the name of Paul Marson said, digital devices are the new flash drives of the mind. Think of that as a linguistic image, flash drives of the mind. And they are really good for that. You can find a whole lot of stuff and get, assuming you have internet access, access to it easily. You can also do a lot of searching, which I'm sure we all do some version of, some more than others, some days more than others. You can search in depth. However, we have to keep in mind that the things that you can search for are usually specific data or maybe if we're lucky, information, but not what I would call knowledge. A neuropsychologist by the name of Susan Greenfield, who's at the University of Oxford, wrote a really interesting book about two years ago called Mind Change, basically asking what the internet is doing to us. And she says, we are now in danger of entering an arguably question-poor world where our brains are saturation-bombed with answers. And I can imagine from everything I know about St. John's, that a question-poor world is a poor world indeed. <laughs> okay, but there are some consequences to these affordances of digital technologies. The word affordances is a term from psychology. It's been used very commonly by people who talk about digital media. And it means what something is good for. So um, a bottle is good for holding water. And a table is good for putting things on so you can write. And a uh, computer is really good for being able to access information if you have an internet connection. But it is not necessarily, it meaning digital media, digital technology, are not necessarily good for mental effort. And one of the questions, and I'll get to this a little later on, is do we try as hard, do we think as hard, do we read as carefully when we're doing it on a digital screen as when we're doing it in print, or carved in stone, or you could take whatever version you'd like. Memory. Do we remember what we read digitally? I'll give you some data to suggest we've got troubles here. And then integration. Do we make an effort to integrate the new things that we have come upon digitally 
with what we already know, with what already is in our minds. And my suggestion is going to be, and I have some data I hope to help support uh, the argument, that the digital technology leads us in a direction that does not foster mental effort and memory and integration. Okay, we'll talk just a smidge about memory. I know some of you have been doing some reading or thinking um, or living some of these other issues. Uh, the Phaedrus looks familiar, I assume, after the <laughs> conversations that took place. All right, so before the internet came along, there were still issues about memory. So the question is, what is it our internal memories should be responsible for? And what is it some or other external memory should be responsible for? And as everybody who writes about this cites from the Phaedrus, their trust in writing will discourage the use of their own memory within them. But I won't dwell on that issue now as to whether writing in and of itself discourages memory, but I'd love to talk about it afterwards, and I'll bet that's on some of your minds. Okay, we know that over time, even when writing had come into <coughs> its own, and that there were some significant, I didn't say preponderance of, but significant number of people who were literate, we know that you still had oral societies and oral cultures. Uh, through Roman times, through the Middle Ages, there were a number of notions of such things as memory palaces, ways to help remember the things you wanted to remember. So there are rooms in the palace, and you'd park certain memories in one room and certain memories in another, and there were actually formulae for how to do this. Uh, so you'd imagine rooms, Cicero did it, Quintilian did it, it's done in the Middle Ages. I will mention, and I don't know whether we have them here or not, uh, there's a bibliography that goes with the talk. So every time I've stuck references here, those are real references, then those will be made available in due time, in due ways. Okay, so memory has been something that even in literate times and literate societies that may have a heavy oral cast to them um, has been something that we think about. All right, what are we gonna talk about tonight? Well, I'm gonna start talking about and then we'll see where we go. The effects of the internet on the mental effort we make and on memory. I'll talk a little bit about my most recent research project, which is how we read digitally versus how we read in print. And the reason I'll do that is not because <coughs> I like the research, but it told me a lot about people's belief structures about how they read in terms of concentration, in terms of memory, in the two different platforms, in print or digitally. Then I want to take the question of memory and thinking to the realm of education, because there are a number of people here who teach, and everybody else has been or is currently a student. And the question is, what kind of education scheme are we devising? What have been our differing philosophies of education over, say, the last two centuries? And where do digital technologies come into that, for better or worse? Then I'll spend a little bit of time on one of my favorite um, whipping entities, namely GPS, and you'll see why in a moment. And then we'll regroup and see what we've learned or what other questions we have. Okay, effects of the internet on memory. A psychologist by the name of Daniel Wagner, uh, who died recently, unfortunately, from Harvard, 
came up with the notion a couple of decades ago of what he called transactive memory. And what he meant by that was, and this was before we're talking about the internet, so this is pre-internet stuff. What he meant by that was we don't ourselves remember everything. We share the memory load with others. It might be with a book. It might be with our significant other. So to take a simple example, um, would you be my memory partner? You, know, you just have to sit. You don't have to do a thing. Here's a deal. You remember where everybody's birthday was, which days the birthdays were, and I'll remember how to change a tire. And together, if we live together, you'll make sure the cards get out or the emails get sent, and if we have a flat, I'll take care of it. I don't remember the birthdays. You don't want to deal with the tires. But together, you know, it's like Jack Spratt. I didn't know if that was right to keep memory. Together, it was transacted. All right. One of Wagner's students named Betsy Sparrow did a study with another partner, plus with her mentor, Wagner, that was published, and you get the, the uh, citation to it, where she wanted to know whether the notion of transactive memory applied to people, one partner, and the internet, a second partner. And she ran some really interesting studies, and you can read about them. And what she found is that people remembered the search path to get to what they were looking for much better than they remembered what they found. Wow. <laughs> yeah. OK. Other studies have been done, both by Betsy Sparrow and some other people, that show some, either, some equally um, concerning results. Okay. After you do an internet search on topic X, and then I ask you, so what do you know about topic Y, which you may know very little about? You believe you know a fair amount about topic Y, because you could have searched it on the internet. <laughs> Whereas if you hadn't first done an internet search, and I just asked you about topic Y, you don't present yourself as knowing as much. That is, there's a search frame of mind that says, well, I could know, so probably I do know, right? No, wrong. Okay, another study, and you'll see more evidence of this a little later, is when we know we can look things up, we stop, this is a gen overgeneralization, but you get my drift, we tend to, that's better, we tend to not work hard to remember it. And if you consider how much of education is now <coughs> digital, maybe not here, but in the rest of the world, this is scary. Okay, Kaspersky Lab. Kaspersky Lab has actually been in the news recently. It is a Russian uh, cyber security company. Um, it's done a lot of, it has a big base in London. Uh, the question is whether American companies should be allowed to use it because the information get back to the Russians. Um, but they've done some interesting studies, and it's the studies I want to talk about that have to do with use of the internet and memory, or use of a digital device more generally and memory. Okay, they came up with a notion they called digital amnesia, which they defined as the experience of forgetting information that you trust the digital device to store and remember for you. 
Okay, so that's what some of the other studies were suggesting happened as well. But here we have some large numbers. Uh, they did one study uh, in Europe with a whole group of countries. You can read the list. Can you see the list? Good. Um, and they did a study with a slightly smaller group of, of, of subjects in the United States. Okay. And I'll give you just a few of the results. A link to, uh, sorry, a, a reference to the study is, is available in the bibliography of that. Okay. So when the question was asked, do you use, your, use the internet as an extension of your brain? In Europe, 80% said yes. In the United States, 91% said yes. Culture matters, but not necessarily to our benefit. Okay, the number's bigger, but that doesn't make it better. All right, memory for search path, not results. <coughs> when you ask, is it necessary to remember facts that you learn online or only where you found them. So remember Betsy Sparrow's uh, and Alia's experiment that said they knew the search path better than what they found with the search path. So both in Europe and the United States, 61% said, it's better to know the search path, because I could always go look it up again, right? Okay. Then there were questions about whether we even try to remember things ourselves. And here there's some really interesting cultural differences. So do you search online first, or do you at least give it the good old college try? Do you try to remember it first? In Europe, 36% said they just go online. 57% said, I try to remember. And then there were a few who were outliers. But there was country variation. So in France, 71% in France said, I try first to remember. Does this sound like a traditional French education? The UK, 36% first tried to remember themselves. And the United States, 39%. So we're you know, a smidge better than the UK. But whether it's really statistically significant remains to be seen. Okay. How often do you forget an online fact, and their question was fact, so we'll just call it data for the moment, as soon as you've used it? Use it maybe to write it down. I know these are not the kinds of papers you folks write, mm -hmm. but some of you who are teachers in other systems, some of you have been in other educational institutions, some of them are called high school, some of them are called college and then you came here for the graduate program. You use the fact and then it's gone with the wind. Okay, Europe, 24% gone. United States, 29% gone. Okay, but what are the effects of this digital amnesia on our memory? And one of the psychologist experts that Kaspersky hired to help prepare the report, named Maria Wimber, said, the trend to look up information before even trying to recall it prevents the buildup of long-term memories, and that makes us process information merely on a shallow, moment-to-moment -moment basis. One of the things that contemporary research in educational psychology is showing is that the best way to learn something is not to read it all, and then read it again, and read it again, but rather read a piece, and then test yourself. And see what you remember and what you don't. And see what you understood and what you don't. As opposed, so that means stopping and thinking about what it is you think you learned 
rather than just blazing ahead and saying, well, I guess it's all going in somehow. Okay. The most recent report on this issue that Kaspersky <coughs> Labs did um, put a rosier face on how wonderful digital technology is. Uh, and it talks about what it calls digital synergy. Well, that sounds positive. Okay. Humans and their devices work in partnership. Okay. So they did a study. Um, this was in Europe, age range 16 to 65. 64% agreed having my smartphone or tablet remember things for me means I can concentrate on something else. Well, you could. Do you? However, and this I find to be heartening and maybe the edge of the wedge for where we could go in the future because I believe in engineering education, not just letting it flower all by itself in the wilderness. Um, younger users, 18 to 22 year olds, are more concerned than older users that, quote, technology is going to take over our lives. And when we look at the data that I collected from 18 to 26 year olds about how they feel about reading digitally versus reading in print. It surprised me that they got it, that they read differently in the two media. Okay, speaking of which, uh, I did a study, I won't go through the details of the study, I'll just say there were 429 people in five different countries. Uh, the data are now, quote, old. Spring 2015 is an eon ago in digital life, but I believe the findings for this particular set of questions is going to be very similar if we were to do the study today as opposed to over a period of time. Okay, so the key quantitative findings, and I won't go through the details of how I gathered the data. If you want to talk about it later, I'm happy to do so. Print is the medium on which 92% of the people said they concentrated the best. I said, on which medium do you concentrate best? Is it in print? Is it on a computer, on a tablet, on an e-reader, on a smartphone? And we could choose. 92% said print. If cost were the same, if cost were the same, would you choose digital or print? Because the reason that most students today choose digital textbooks when they're available over print is they are cheaper. It's a cost issue. And we can talk a lot more about cost, but that has been the driving force. If costs were the same, what would you do? And I asked them about reading for schoolwork, 87% said print. I asked them reading for pleasure, 81% said, I take print. If the text is long, would you choose print? Would you do that for schoolwork? Would you do that for pleasure reading? 86% said for schoolwork, if it's a long text, I'll take print. For pleasure reading, 78% said, I take print. So there's something going on here. I did not stack the deck. This was independent people in five different countries telling us pretty much the same thing. For short texts, sometimes it depended on whether, if they were in school, the institution made the document available only electronically, so you didn't get a choice. Okay. All right. But then I asked a number of other questions that got to give people opportunities to tell me what was specifically on their minds. And here are some of the comments that had to do with reading, learning, and memory. So one student said, reading in hard copy, meaning print, makes me focus more on what I am reading. Another said, 
Compared to reading in hard copy, I'm prone to skimming, unlike reading thoroughly on a digital screen. One said, when reading print, it takes me longer because I read more carefully. When reading print, feels like the content sticks in the head more easily. Or when reading print, I feel like I understand it more. I've asked them such questions as, what's the one thing you like most? What's the one thing you like least about reading digitally versus reading in print? You could have said anything. No, my battery dies. You could have said anything you wanted. These are some of the things that came up. Not everyone, but a substantial number. Okay, there's other research that's been done. I won't go into the details of it. There's uh, a project of the European Union called COST, which stands for Cooperation in Science and Technology. Uh, and they had a project uh, called Combining Print with Digital, where surveys were done in a number of different countries. Uh, and they interviewed people uh, about how you read and how you write using paper versus digital. Bottom line for reading, the vast majority of people, they wrote in essays. It wasn't a survey in the sense of answer this question this way and that way. Print is an easier medium in which to concentrate, and then one of the people collecting data, um, Baranossi, et cetera, said, uh, students feel that paper allows them, seems to allow readers to immerse themselves more in the content better, which improves learning. Again, these are responses of the readers and the writers themselves, not some academic like me, or like my colleagues in Italy, making it up. Okay, other kinds of research that's been done by a number of psychologists, uh, in some cases, sociologists, linguists, and so forth. Uh, Kaufman and Flanagan did an interesting study recently where they found that participants did better when they were reading print on abstract questions that required inferential reasoning but we'd like to have people do this kind of thing on a regular basis, right? However, they did better when reading digitally and answering concrete questions. And I'll bet, although I can't prove it, that that second part of doing better digitally is that's the kind of thing that we do digitally. We pick up this little fact team, this piece of information, store it long enough to be able to spit it back, but to think through a problem takes more work. Uh, Anne Mangan has done a lot of research on how people read digitally versus in print. She's uh, at the University of Stavanger in Norway. And she did one small experiment where she gave a story to um, people who were reading digitally versus reading in print, and then asked them to reconstruct the chronology. Well, there's a certain kind of logic to the chronology, and the people who read in print did a better job of reconstructing the chronology. And then you can, other people have asked readers' perceptions, the study at the bottom of the screen. 71% of participants in a particular study of college students felt, felt they remembered more con course content when they read it in print. So that was not a test. And we could talk later about the problems of giving people comprehension tests because the results don't necessarily tell you what you want to know. But we could get to that in discussion if you'd like to. Okay. Another kind of question is, when you read digitally versus reading in print, can you get lost in the book? Can you get so absorbed that the rest of the world sort of doesn't exist? That's one of the things that books, in principle, have been very good for. Um, and Mangan, again, and one of her colleagues said for a study that readers noted a higher level of narrative coherence, that is, they felt the story cohered, 
and feeling they could lose themselves in the story in the print condition. The term that's used for this in the literature is transportation. I thought that was getting from place A to place B with a vehicle, but not, not necessarily. So transporting your mind to another place. In the study that I did with two of my graduate students, uh, Rachel Kalixt and um, Nazim Havawalov, um, one of the students wrote, with hard copy, many emotions get attached. Digital is superficial. And in this Farnosi study, again, the paper, the readers immerse themselves in the content better. That is, they, the readers writing their essays said that. Okay, education, which is what I care a lot about. And so do probably every person in this room. So does every person in this room. All right. To recap where we've been. The growing use of digital technologies for, is for you to be used for transactive memories. That is, digital technologies are now the new flash drives of the mind. That's where we are in terms of the way a lot of education is currently going. However, if you look historically at what the goals of education have been, they've changed over time. And they haven't changed because you know, it's the faces of the movement, they're slated, they're fated to be this way, we could see what we would like to have happen. And my question is, what should we try to shape for the future? As well as when we get finished with formal education, how do we want to go about learning and knowing ourselves in our everyday lives? So just a little bit of history. If you look at education through the 19th century and the early part of the 20th, there was an incredible emphasis on memorization. We can talk more about that later, if, if you'd like to. That began to shift the end of the 19th century, largely outside of the United States and in the United States with John Dewey, um, where there was more of an emphasis on nurtures uh, children's creativities, don't focus on memorization. Okay, and progressive education had more and less success in different parts of the world, it had a smidge of success for a short number of years in the United States with John Dewey, then it died out, then it started coming back again. But there are other kinds of things that have changed in recent times, let's just call it after World War II for simplicity. Okay, so one of the conflicts has been how much information do we want students to have in their heads? How many names and dates, you know, think about the old history classes, when, when did the Civil War start, when did the Civil War end, and so forth. Uh, who was the fourth president of the United States? What were his dates? Um, or do we want to focus on broader concepts? In the late 1980s, a man by the name of E.D. Hirsch, who taught at the University of Virginia, came up with a notion he called cultural literacy. He said, you may not think memorization is good for anything, but how do you become a member of a society if you don't know anything? Something's got to be in your head with you. Here's a list of the things I think would be useful. And some people loved it and some people hated it, right? Okay. Within the 21st century, there have been a number of different changes that have, start, that have begun to come about. Um, one move, and we won't go through the details of it, but we can I'm happy to talk about it later if you'd like, has <coughs> been what's been called problem-based learning, where there's another version called project-based learning, where you say, how would we solve the pollution problem in Chesapeake Bay? That's your problem. Okay, now you go figure out what you have to learn in order to address the problem. 
rather than here's the reading list, and it's a reading list about pollution and water pollution in particular, and here's one example of the Chesapeake Bay. So it's a different approach, and it's more conceptual. The problem is, and the other thing that we do is we tell people critical thinking is really important. And when you try to figure out what people mean by critical thinking, it's like the 10 blind men and the elephant, if you're lucky and there are only 10 stories to it. Um, you ask uh, university faculty, what do you think you're accomplishing with your students? Well, we're teaching them to think critically. You ask employers, and there are many, many studies that are done um, I have a colleague who runs our career center at American University, so he tells me where to look for all the studies. And they all say the most important thing we want our new hires to have is the ability to think critically. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, critical thinking. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. One of the questions is, what are you going to think critically about? Yeah. <laughs> and as I love to ask my students, what do you know when the internet is down? I couldn't write my essay, Professor Barron. The electricity was out. I said, do you own a pen? Well, yeah. Do you have any paper? Well, yeah. What's your problem? OK. Uh, how and uh, what and how much do you have to hold in your head to think critically? We could come to, you know, if we had two hours, I bet we could come up with a really nice definition of critical thinking. And I'll bet, I bet my bottle of water, I'll bet that some of that would entail having some things in your head. Okay. Recall what Fisher et al. said, doing internet searches leads us to believe we know about things, topics we haven't researched. Okay. You may ask, so what does GPS have to do with this? Wait. There we go. Okay. GPS. How many of you have at least one GPS device? Okay. How many of you drive with a GPS device? May I spook you? <laughs> Good. Thank you. Okay. GPS is helping us know where we are or how to get to another point in space. Really helpful stuff. Uh, there's a very nice book that was written on GPS by a man named Greg Milner called Pinpoint. Uh, he tells a lot of the history of how we got GPS in the first place. Uh, we really, you know, the, the tweet version of it is GPS began as a U.S. military application to improve the accuracy of where our bombs go. Okay. And then the rest, as you say, is history. And there are now nearly 3 billion mobile GPS apps. Those are apps, right? a lot. Okay. Miller wrote a really nice short uh, op-ed for the New York Times, I think it was, and the reference is in the bibliography, called Ignore the GPS. That ocean is not a road. <laughs> you see why I want you to get a little concerned about what's on your GPS device. And he has a lovely chapter called Death by GPS, because there have been not one, not two, but multiple cases where people followed yeah. what GPS told them to do and either they got totally lost and froze to death in the wilderness, or they went off cliffs. Wow. It happens, and the GPS told you to do it. We talk about not believing everything you read. All right. The London black car taxi drivers. Do you know about the knowledge in London? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. 
Well, it may become a distant memory, I'm sorry to say. Okay. Traditionally, there was this thing called the knowledge, and you'd pay a lot of money to go to school to learn the 320 routes, the 25,000 streets, and the 20,000 landmarks and places of interest that some tourist or other might want to be taken to that was not Buckingham Palace. Okay. Interesting studies have been done looking at brain scans, fMRI scans, of the hippocampus, which is the part of your brain that is responsible for spatial orientation. It's, it's amazing what fMRI scans have done. So musicians uh, have different brain scans than non-musicians. People who are right-handed have different brain scans than people who are left-handed and so forth. But what's relevant here is that people who had had the knowledge and been long-time London taxi drivers had a bigger hippocampus than the ones who were just starting out, and that was even bigger than the ones who weren't taxi drivers at all. So we know that needing to have in your brain the ability to find where you are in space and how to get from place A to place B changes your brain. I'll tell you in a moment why I care. Okay. Because for memory deterioration, and I'll pick on Alzheimer's because studies have been done here, we know that one of the things that happens to many people who have memory loss and Alzheimer's in particular is they don't know where they are. They get lost. We worry about a parent, a grandparent, wandering off and not being able to find his or her way back because they don't have any sense of where they are. All right. So then my question is, is GPS our version of Roman-led pots? We're so rich we can afford GPS, but is using it weakening our hippocampus, which we may really need if we are at risk of memory loss. And then there are the winds of change. With the coming of Uber, Uber is now available in London. The black taxi driver said, this isn't fair. We spend a fortune, and they really do, to go through the training to get the knowledge. Uber drivers don't need to. All they have to do is turn on their GPS. Okay. So there is a move to eliminate the need for London black taxi drivers Black, black, taxi, black car taxi drivers to need to have the knowledge and just let them use GPS. Their brains will serve them. All right. But another group I'd love to talk about, and there are several other examples, and I've taken this really from Milner's book, Pinpoint, um, is what's going on in northern Canada among the, some of the First Nation people, as they're called in Canada, namely the Inuit. So some research has been done in trying to figure out how a traditional society that has relied on traditional means of navigation, what is happening to that society with the coming of new technologies, in this case, GPS technologies. So what has been the good old way of doing things? Traditionally, they oriented themselves by understanding wind behavior, snowdrift patterns, animal behavior, tidal cycles, currents, and astronomical phenomena. If you are in northern Canada in the winter, it all just looks like snow. 
How the heck do you find your way around? And the answer is, for centuries, the Inuit have done this. By the way, there's a similar thing called stick charting that is done in Micronesia, where how do you get from one island to another and you can't see the other island and you have no modern instruments? Modern meaning going back about 300 years. You look at the waves, you read them, and you find your way. Okay, so one of the things that's happened, traditionally it's, you know, you raise the young to learn how to do this. It's part of what it means to grow up. But now GPS has come, and the question is, are the young saying, why am I wasting my time? Dad, just use the GPS, right? So it's like learning uh, indigenous languages when you could learn English or you could learn Russian or you could learn French. Why, why do I need to do this? And, and there's real cultural issues at stake here. But part of the issue is, do you trust your GPS? So the GPS does not tell you where a cliff is. The GPS does not tell you when an ice floe has broken and you cannot walk there. So there are some real dangers to just saying, what the heck, use GPS. Um, and in the case of the Inuit, they've had to figure out how to incorporate other technologies that have come along, like the rifle as opposed to the harpoon, like the snowmobile as opposed to walking yourself. And there's a cultural question as well as a do you trust your source of information question. Okay, so I said we call spatial orientation on Alzheimer's. Um, a few other studies have been done and they're very much in their infancy. Um, does use of GPS affect us in any negative ways? Positive affordance is, gets us where we're going most of the time. Tells us where we are most of the time. Okay. Some studies have been done that says if you use GPS, you're less aware of what else is around you. You are less able to navigate on your own because you need your device. Because you say, I can't do this without my device. Um, other research has said that if you're asked to build a cognitive map of what a place is, you can do that much better than if you have been relying on GPS to do it for you. By analogy, another interesting study, again, you'll have the citation for it, was done on what people remember of what they have seen in a museum. And the comparison was done between one group of students who were asked to just take a picture of objects they had seen or paintings they had seen. And the other people were said, no, don't take pictures, just look at the objects and look at the paintings. And then afterwards they were tested on what they remembered. I bet you could figure out what the outcome was even if you didn't read it on the screen. Namely, if you have the picture, what did you have to look at it for? You could have looked some other time. Think of all the people who go to the Eiffel Tower and go to see the tower because they're too busy jumping, taking a selfie of themselves, right? Um, but the people who just could look and all they had to rely on was their memory, they weren't told they were going to be quizzed afterwards. They remembered more. Okay. So what are some of the challenges? Let's see if we can pull this all together. What do we want people to know? Are search skills more important than memory? A lot of effort is now spent, not just by Microsoft and Google, but by high schools, middle schools, universities, in teaching smart search strategies. 
And I've nothing against that. But if that's done to the detriment of other kinds of learning, of what might stay in our head and get processed in our head, then I have some problems. Okay, so I, I see us as redefining the relative importance of data versus information, and certainly versus knowledge. What are the cognitive implications of reading on a screen? We're just starting to do some research here. Uh, one of the things that worries me a lot, because I find myself doing it, and if I'm doing it, I'll bet you a bunch of other folks are, that I tend to use books rather than read them. So what do I mean by that? It's one o'clock in the morning, and I have a paper I promised I would get in by first thing in the morning, someone. And, and there, there's a reference I need to find. If my library, uh, if my library has a digital copy of the book, and I can, quote, check it out, and I can go check that source, or check the quotation, or look up some little piece of information, I go do it, and then I get out, and I go about my merry way. If I had the book in front of me, even if I, in olden days, went to the library, because it wasn't one o'clock in the morning, and looked at the book, I might end up reading the whole chapter. I might end up, heck, reading the whole book. I don't do that nearly as much if I have the digital access. And I say, you know, it, it, it's an emergency. I just need to do it now. I'll come back sometime. How many digital photographs do you have on your phones that you have never come back to? <laughs> Enough said. Okay. Do we pause to think as often when reading digitally as in print? One of the things that digital technologies do, one of the affordances of digital technologies, is to hasten us forward, to say, keep going, keep going, keep going. You're doing, you go to do a search on Google or Bing, wherever you like to do your searches, and you scan through and say, no, nothing on that page, keep going. There are lots of studies that have been done on how much time we spend when we do a search, how much time we spend on a page, and depending upon what the item is, it's 30 seconds is long. There are other studies that have been done that suggest when you have uh, a, um, a web page, we don't read the whole web page. We start here and we chug along, and that's nice. And then we go sort of like this. And by the time we get to the bottom, we usually aren't reading anything. It's known as the F pattern. OK, does everyone read that way? No. But we surely don't read everything that's on the page. Okay. And the question is, if we're so busy moving on to the next, do we stop and think? I mean, it used to be you'd get up, you'd walk around. You folks probably still do, given some of the texts that I know that you know, the student here is reading. Um, but most students don't. Okay. Does emphasis on plucking information from the internet and not remembering it diminish the opportunities to integrate the new things we've come upon with what we already know? Well, if you don't remember it anymore, you surely can't integrate it. Okay. Are learning and memory sources becoming ephemeral? That is, we know we're using lots of things digitally for vision, to read or to see things graphic. We're, the biggest growth in um, digital technologies in terms of sources of information is audiobooks. It's not ebooks, it's audiobooks. Um, print, in a funny way, is also becoming ephemeral. Print used to be it's durable, it lasts, you can go back to it, other people can go read the same thing that you read. But what's happening with print is, is a little scary for me. 
Uh, the first thing that's happening is there are a number of people who are renting textbooks in print. You can rent digitally, you can rent in print. If you mark in the print, you'll get less money back. <laughs> yeah, same thing as selling used books when you bought it and then you sold it back. Um, there's this lovely um, disclaimer on Amazon to say you'll get all your money back unless we think you have marked it up too much, in which case we have your credit card and you pay the full price. Okay. We also don't keep a lot of print. Think of things you've printed out as printouts and then dispose of. You printed it out, okay, that was good. But then, I hope you recycled it. But then it's gone. Similarly, it used to be said, you know, in France, it used to be said in Germany, you never throw out a book. I throw out books now. I said, am I really doing this? Because I live in the contemporary society and I say, well, I can't keep them all. I can always get it from the library. I can buy it again. Do I? Probably not. Now, I probably have 15,000 books between my husband yeah, and me in my house, so it's not as if I have no books. But the attitude towards print, I can feel shifting. And if it's happening with me, I bet it's happening with others. Will our technology always work? What do we know when the internet is down? And for GPS, in techno speramus, too close. <laughs> Somebody follow GPS? Right into the drink. The choice is up to you. Thank you.